Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, each year thousands of young Mormons push handcarts across the plains or up over the highest nearby hill dressed in 19th century clothing. Tens of thousands visit sites across the United States, particularly in the American West. Sarah Patterson argues that as the Latter-day Saints community globalized in the 20th and early 21st centuries, its relationship to space was transformed. Contemporary Mormons still want to touch and to feel the principles of their early church. So they mark and claim the landscapes of the American West with versions of their history carved in stone. Sarah Patterson is professor of theological studies at Hanover College in Hanover, Indiana. She is the author of Pioneers in the Attic, Place and Memory Along the Mormon Trail, which is the focus of our conversation today. Sarah Patterson, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me, Al. So this, as I was saying to you in the green room, <laughs> uh, this touched a lot of spots uh, for me. Um, it's uh, American religious history, check. It's about place and space, check. It's about the sacralizing of landscape, check. So it's got all these uh, interesting things, uh, at least for me in it. Um, but I know that uh, possibly our um, listeners will be somewhat unfamiliar with the history of the the early history of the LDS church. So could you just like give it the first 10 years to us um, very briskly from Joseph Smith and the tablets on to say leaving for the West? Okay. This is kind of a tough task. <laughs> I know it is. I'm uh, sorry, but you were prepared for it. I know. Right. <laughs> uh, Joseph Smith was born in 1805 and as a teenager, he had a moment where he began to wonder which of the many churches um, around him clamoring for his attention was the correct church. And he went out into a grove uh, to pray. And this moment is now remembered as the first vision in the LDS church. Um, and Joseph said that he found out that none of the churches were true uh, and that the true church still needed to be restored. And so that set him on a journey. He later um, said that he received a visit from an, the angel Moroni, who told him about golden tablets that had an ancient scripture that was buried in a hill in New York. And over a series of years, uh, Joseph said that he re re finally received those tablets, um, and then he began the translation process. Uh, and for that, he used seer stones and spoke what he translated, and then a scribe would write it down. And when that process was complete, uh, it appeared as the Book of Mormon in 1830. And that's the same year that he founded a church. And really from the very beginning, even before the Book of Mormon arrived, 
Joseph and the believers who followed him were persecuted. Um, They moved from New York to Ohio, to Missouri, to Illinois, um, and were consistently struggling with neighbors who thought that they were not a legitimate form of Christianity, um, who felt that they were an economic and political threat. And and so there's just a series of movements westward um, trying to find a place where they could set up shop. Now, Um, this might seem kind of strange that such a a group uh, following what seems an esoteric belief system would be an economic threat. But some quite incredible things were happening. The the Mormons were growing uh, throughout this period, and they were growing with international international disciples were joining them. Is that that right? That's absolutely right. And uh, I think that people, this raised a concern in their neighbors because people were being drawn to the church, um, not just as individuals, but by the congregation. And so people felt uh, like Joseph Smith had, and this is often the story of new religious movements, that Joseph Smith had some sort of sway over his believers and that he had duped them in some way um, and that they were giving up all of their um, economic wealth to somebody who was eventually just using them to make money. Um, so I think non-believers were consistently surprised by how many people the church was um, bringing into its fold. And by the time they make it to Illinois, to uh, a place on the Mississippi that they call Nauvoo, there are about how many people are part of that community now? 10,000, something like that? 20,000? Oh, Al, I would have to look that up. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. I, I, I think, as I, I recall from your book, uh, it's about, it's the largest city. I know it's the largest city in Illinois. Correct. Uh, and it's about ten or 12,000. Chicago's about 8,000. I, I, I think that's ballpark. Um, he's there further persecuted by the neighbors. He's arrested and he's killed by a mob in the Carthage, Illinois jail. We'll come back to that a little bit. Um, and then they make the decision that they will basically avoid all human contact. Is that, they, they basically, they don't want any more neighbors to give them trouble. Yes, that's primarily right. Um, I think Jan Ships, who's a religious studies scholar, um, kind of framed this period as the atomization of the tradition. So there wasn't, after Joseph Smith died, a clear successor to his role. And so there was a lot of confusion. There were a number of people making bids to be um, the next prophet. And um, a large group of people followed Brigham Young uh, west to Utah. And you're absolutely right. They did that because they felt uh, that maybe in the west, further west, they would find a place where they uh, could kind of safely build uh, the kind of society that they wanted. But not all of the Mormons at that time followed Brigham Young westward. Mm-hmm. Sure. 
because I, I was, I guess I never realized this, but the first wagon train with that went out with bringing me on is just several hundred people, a couple hundred people. It's not that, not that. Many. Right. Right. Uh, but they are soon joined by others, uh, taking the Mormon trail to, you know, let's be kind and say it's the most desolate part of North America. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I suspect, you know, at least the, in the Great Salt Lake Basin, there's some, there's a, certainly a native presence there. Yes, but not as much as you would find in other places, uh, because it's 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 not great, Bob. Um, it's not just it's not it's just not as good as other places. Um, so they arrive, and then people start to join them by taking the Mormon Trail in both wagon trains, but also famously uh, pushing handcarts. Uh, could you explain that what a handcart is? Because we'll need to come back to that. Sure. A handcart was a cheap form of transportation uh, westward. They were built with wheels um, set the same distance apart as the axle and wheels of covered wagons. Uh, And then they had a large bed where um, pioneers could place whatever they were wanting to take with them. And the thing about the handcarts that made them cheaper and easier to use uh, was that it was humans who pushed and pulled them. Um, and so you didn't have to have the livestock. You didn't have to have the food for the livestock. Um, it was just kind of a, a more economic means of transportation. It looks like a 19th century uh, variant of those sort of those double wheeled uh, garden carts that you see around the sort of square sides. And yeah, but, that's a good way to put yeah, it. Yeah, so it's basically a wheelbarrow. Uh, it's, it's a it's a glorified <laughs> wheelbarrow. Um, and uh, and I and I gather one of the really important points of the book is what gathering into Zion means. So could you explain what gathering into Zion means in the 19th century and why it sort of creates the history that is then is being that we'll then discuss as it's memorialized. Um, So what's the command to gather into Zion? Joseph Smith had an early revelation that the saints or believers should gather together um, and live together and build up Zion. And that idea that they could create kind of the example society and everyone else would see the faithfulness and the righteousness of the people living there. And then his idea was that Zion would eventually spread all over the world. Um, And So in 1831, he had a revelation that Independence, Missouri was Zion and that that the people should gather together there. Uh, He planned the city. He placed stone markers where he wanted the temple to be. The temple was going to be at the center. And um, what I think is so important about that moment was that he said Zion was a literal physical place that people could uh, point to on a map, that they could travel to, that they could help build. 
And I think that that was a very powerful, persuasive um, theological claim that he made. And so when uh, believers followed Brigham Young West to Utah, that idea of Zion transferred with them. Um, so they came to believe that Salt Lake City was Zion, but that same idea that you could um, point to it on a map, that you could travel to it, that you could help build it, uh, was a really powerful uh, theology that that got thousands of people to cross um, a long stretch of land and try to build a new society. So when did this idea, when did this theology begin to alter? And what was there? Because it took decades, if not longer, uh, to, to alter. So how did that, and that's, that alteration is important to your story. So how did that happen? Um, so it's, it started to happen in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, as Utah was making its bid for statehood, as the church wanted uh, to and sought out making the claim that they were American, just like other Americans. And so uh, part of that was, of course, giving up the practice of polygamy. And at that point in time, it was not... It was no longer reasonable uh, that all of the believers were going to move to uh, the Salt Lake Basin. And so theologically, the church began to spiritualize the idea of Zion. So they said things like, Zion is wherever the people of God are. Um, they encouraged believers to stay where they were and to build Zion there. And so they played on that idea that Joseph Smith had that Zion would eventually spread throughout the world uh, and said to believers, you know, it's your job to build Zion where you are. Um, and so that was a really important shift in the theology to move Zion from a place that was a, a physical place and to spiritualize it um, and say that by living a righteous life, you were creating Zion. So in a way, then, the uh, memorialization of the physical um, gathering into Zion becomes important because of the spiritualization of the gathering into Zion. Is that, did I, did I yeah. get my wires? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, yeah. So, and what's fascinating about, about it is because not many American Christian movements or religious movements have been very interested or very good at, if they're interested in it, at memorializing space. Um, mm -hmm. I've thought about this continually, you know, comparing, say, colonial Virginia to medieval England, the England that Virginians came from, uh, which even if you're an arch uh, Puritan, you're s surrounded by markers of religious space, even if you've torn them down. Um, or tried to, uh, to tried to de desecrate them, and so they're still there. There are steeples everywhere. Uh, there are way crosses. There, the landscape is 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 ordered towards certain religious ideals. Um, that never no one ever recreated that in Virginia, or New York, or Massachusetts, or anything like that. Um, not in a coherent way. But here, 
starting, as you, you describe, a, a coherent process by which uh, the place and the sacred are, are, and memory and history are all united. It's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah, I think that uh, that was kind of put in place when Joseph Smith claimed that he dug the golden tablets up from a hill. Um, mm-hmm. And then the Book of Mormon claims to be American scripture. So it's about the Americas. It says that Christianity happened in the Americas a long, long time ago. Um, And so I think that was part of the appeal of early Mormonism, that the Book of Mormon made this place a sacred place. Um, And then when Brigham Young took the pioneers westward, they they read that story as living out the Exodus story. Um, So in a new way, the scripture sanctified the landscape. And and so, yes, I think that um, this tradition in particular has a really powerful claim to saying that there are sacred spaces in the Americas. So let's talk about a few of the uh, features of this uh, memorialization. First, let's, let's start with the, uh, speaking of place, this is the place park, which is, uh, I, I guess, comparing it to Exodus, it's that moment where the Mormons, uh, the new Israelites, look down into the new, the new Canaan, the new, uh, the new Israel. Yes, that's definitely how it's remembered. Um, and in the early 20th century, there were a group of um, members who went to try to find the exact spot where Brigham Young was when he looked out over the Salt Lake Valley and said that it was the place. Um, and that's that's an interesting moment because they were using journals, they were very carefully plotting their footsteps, trying to find the exact location when that story itself had already been to some degree mythologized. Um, when, when Brigham Young arrived um, in July of 1847, he had mountain fever. And so he was in the um, wagon and uh, didn't make a big deal about it Um, in his journals. And there wasn't a lot of evidence in journals that it was this momentous occasion. Um, But fairly quickly, the collective memory started building that that was a really important moment. And Wilford Woodruff, who was um, driving the the wagon, um, at the 50th anniversary of their entry into the Salt Lake Valley, um, I think really solidified this idea that this was a, a momentous occasion. Can I, can I read just a quote yeah, from please. his comments? Yeah. Um, he said, on the 24th, I drove my carriage with President Young lying on a bed in it into the open valley, the rest of the company following. When we came out of the canyon into full view of the valley, I turned the side of my carriage around open to the west, and President Young arose from his bed and took survey of the country. 
While gazing on the scene before us, he was enwrapped in vision for several minutes. He had seen the valley before in vision, and upon the occasion he saw the future glory of Zion and Israel, as they would be, planted in the valleys of the mountains. When the vision had passed, he said, It is enough. This is the right place. Drive on. And so that's, that account, I think, really set the the framework for thinking about this as a moment of um, Brigham Young showing his prophetic office um, and of his seeing the future of the valley. Um, and so in collective memory, the, <laughs> the account was, was shortened. And so it ev- eventually became remembered as him saying, this is the place. Mm-hmm. Um, with kind of all of the confidence that 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 conjures up, and, and so it's, uh, it's very interesting because I I hadn't realized until I read your book that this is not I always uh, when I maybe I remember reading this story probably in like a, you know grade school history textbook uh-huh. and I I always love just uh, bringing me on on a horse saying yeah oh, this is the place right but right. instead what we're describing is it's a memorializing a, a spiritual moment of vision of yes. Uh, past and the only thing I can really uh, it's a prophetic vision it's a moment when past present and future are all intertwined absolutely um, time when the walls of time break down um, they are one with Moses and the Israelites and Joshua crossing the Jordan uh, and they're also one with the future the glory of future Zion it's all there at that moment so it's this this memorial this park this <laughs> state park has is really commemorating a a moment of intense spiritual oneness Mm -hmm. yeah and and uh the the sculptor of this is the place monument was brigham young's grandson Hmm. and he he knew that brigham young there was no evidence that brigham young had said this is the place but he um still carved that in the the uh granite and Hmm what he said was that the words were symbolically true. And, and I think that that just kind of captures what's going on. And the, the idea behind the park was that people could stand in the spot where Brigham Young stood. They could look out over the valley and, and what it had become. And they could know that everything that had happened was part of, um, part of a plan and that, the prophet could, as you said, the see the future mm-hmm. um, in that space. So how is this? This started out as a as a as a monument in a state park, and now it's become it's become something even bigger than that. Uh, how's it How's it changed and altered over time? Um, it has. They have added a statuary walk. And so there are a number of monuments and sculptures that commemorate different important moments in Mormon memory, uh, is how I would put it. Um, And so at the park, I think you see a lot of um, really popular uh, narratives being told. Um, And then they've also fairly recently included um, what's called the Native American Village. Um, And 
I think that place really stands out. It it is um, it is it was clearly created as an attempt to include um, indigenous peoples in the stories that the park was telling. Um, but it's kind of set off from the other places, and the most um, visible aspect of it is this giant teepee. Um, and when you go into that space, what stands out to me is that there are no dates anywhere. Um, and so I think that it um, romanticizes uh, indigenous presence um, and suggests that the the pioneer narrative has nothing to do with the indigenous people in Utah. And I think that's really an unfortunate um, thing. It's understandable because of the kind of collective memory work that they're trying to do. Um, but they're avoiding that the pioneer narrative um, was tied to the displacement of the people who were already there. Mm-hmm. Um, what, um, but there's also like, there's like a pink neo-Gothic cottage. There's the Huntsman Hotel. Um, oh, I'm yes. Like, got, Thank you. I've got all, I've got all this yeah. stuff on. <laughs> as, I, as I were talking, there's the treasure house, which I guess is a museum. I mean, yes. There's, uh, there's a what, whole what, kind what of living this? history section okay. um, where they actually moved um, some 19th century structures and then also just recreated others. Um, and that's part of the idea that people could go to the park and kind of live the 19th century as it was. Mm-hmm. So uh, the living history, uh, it, 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 as the living history muse- uh, movement moved out from Williamsburg, it made the, this is the place park. Kind of. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as it reached so many other places. Oh, let's talk about, you use a very arresting phrase. You called the Mormon trail a lineal temple. I love that. Um, you came up with that, right? I'm, 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 I'm right. To, I'm right to think you're a genius for coming up with that. Right? Thank you. I didn't come up with it. Though. Oh dang it! It's a really. I was. I should. I shouldn't have asked. But it's a really. It's a really arresting phrase. Thank you. Uh, I mean, I, I, I found that phrase in a newsletter of a group that was working to prepare the Mormon Trail for the. Um, 1997 sesquicentennial celebration Mm -hmm. and they use that phrase and I thought it was just so perfect and it captured um, part of what I'm arguing in the book. From within Uh, the LDS church what does that mean because that we should unpack that because that's very interesting that they use that Um, that therefore has a very a certain a certain weight which uh, you know a gentile like me can't really appreciate so why why don't you uh Why don't you explain what that is? Sure. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. The temple plays a really important um, role in the LDS tradition. Uh, It is the place where you go to um, do the rituals um, necessary for believers to do. And so it's different from the ward meeting places where you go every Sunday, just like other Christians in the United States to um, to do your Sunday worship. It's a place that is set apart, um, and and it's focused on the ritual life of the community. 
and a, a, a number of general authorities, that's um, what the leaders of the church are called, have talked about how the temple is the only sacred space in um, the tradition. And they're, they're theologically trying to make the claim that no one space is more sacred or significant than another, um, except for this built environment where you have, where you come to do your rituals. Um, and I think that that idea of the lineal temple is really helpful in talking about the Mormon trail because there is all of this um, space making and space narrating happening along the Mormon trail. Uh, and then there is a lot of ritual activity happening there. And so religious believers are doing the things that show that the Mormon trail is a place that is set apart, even if, um, theologically speaking, they might not claim that any one spot is more sacred than another, um, they're doing the activities that show that this is a special place in the tradition. So uh, what are some of the things that they're doing? What are they doing, first of all? Uh, you, you, in Chapter 5, you talk about the Bodil Mortensen um, and as a, an example of a, of a martyr tradition in Mormonism. Um, mm-hmm. I, can we talk about that? Then we'll talk about the other things that they're that they're commemorating uh, in the Lineal Temple. So who was Bodiel Mortensen and how did she become important? Um, Sure. She was a 10-year-old girl um, who was traveling from Denmark um, to Salt Lake City. Her family had converted to the church and couldn't afford to send, to travel as a family unit. Um, So they were sending... Um, their children kind of one at a time until they could save the money for the rest of the family to arrive. And so her sister had already made the journey um, to Utah and Bodo was part of the um, Willie Handcart Company that was traveling in 1856. And the Willie and Martin Handcart Companies are remembered um, for all of the tragedies that they met along the way. They left um, They left for Utah way too late in the season. Um, their hand carts were not well constructed. Um, they didn't have the rations that other hand cart companies had taken with them. Um, and so when they reached Wyoming, um, because they had left late in the season, they were caught in a blizzard. Um, And Bodil had been told to look after the children who were younger than she was. Um, And she helped them get to the, the children get to their next campsite. Um, And then she went off to collect kindling for a fire. Um, and she didn't come back. She, they found her the next day. She had frozen to death. Um, she was kind of leaning against a handcart wheel, uh, holding the kindling and, um, and her story, um, in terms of historical evidence is 
just a slip of a story. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that she has taken on this large importance in the, the church. Um, and I argue that she's been made a martyr um, because she she stands at the intersection of two narratives that the institutional church wants to say are central narratives to um, their identity. And that's the, the immigrant narrative um, and then the pioneer narrative. Um, and she, because she was coming from Denmark, represents both of those groups. And she also represents, um, when she's talked about in um, in fireside chats and general authority uh, talks, she's talked about um, as having sacrificed for Zion. Um, and another phrase that has been used to talk about the pioneers who didn't make it to Utah is the, the price we paid. Um, and so I think that that idea that uh, the pioneer sacrificed for this theological principle and to make their way to this physical space called Zion, um, the church has, has seen in that a powerful theological teaching tool. So says to believers, you know, you're, you're not a, you may not be a pioneer pushing a handcart, but you have your own hills that you have to overcome. Um, you have your obstacles and you need this kind of pioneer spirit, um, to get through. So what are some other practices that now are occur? I, I, this relates to what I mentioned in the intro, um, this sort of um, this commemorative activity uh, of people pushing, dressing up, dressing up, putting putting on nineteenth century uh, costume, and then pushing handcarts along the Mormon Trail. Um, it's become a Mormon Santiago de Compostela, uh, mm-hmm. really, and mm-hmm. uh, it's a pilgrimage way, uh, yes. and in which one participates in the, in the past and in, in the future and sort of the same, there seems to be some of the same spiritual drive that led to, that is captured by that account of, of uh, Brigham Young at, uh, at yes. the, seeing, uh, seeing the new Zion. Um, when did this start? Is this a relatively new thing and, and how, how, how is it done? Um, it isn't, a relatively new thing, but it it uh, since the the 1997 sesquicentennial celebration, it has become increasingly popular. Um, and so, for that celebration, uh, there were a group of believers who made the entire journey, um, and took several months to do it and they were televised and had news crews following them. And it was really a moment um, that was good public relations for the church um, and where they could um, say to other Americans, we were part of making the United States what it is. And since that time, the practice has become more popular. It is. It has also been distilled down. Um, so a lot of people don't have four months to go recreate a journey. Um, and so it's been 
distilled down, people might go to sites along the Mormon Trail, um, and there are a number of places that you can go that are are specifically meant for this, and you can get hand carts and you can push them for a weekend or um, or for you know a shorter period of time. Even at this is the place park, you can do it for an afternoon. Um, what uh, now are those places along the Mormon Trail that have some sort of um, are they some sort of a historical uh, a point at which something happened uh, that's yes. of uh, spiritual importance? So yes. And this is the place, obviously. What are some of these other places along the trail? Um, there's Martin's Cove in Wyoming, where uh, which was one of the sites of the Martin and Willie handcart tragedies. Um, there's Willie's Crossing, which is also part of that in Wyoming. Um, there are spots in Nebraska. Um, they're really kind of scattered throughout i perhaps to um allow for more people to come to one that is close by um but what's interesting is you mentioned that this is clearly a pilgrimage activity and i think that you're right but in the lds tradition it's not necessarily tied to the mormon trail so if you can't for whatever reason make it to the mormon trail there are still historical reenactments reenactments where believers will um, dress up in 19th century clothing and they will go and find, um, you know, the highest hill around and push a handcart over it. And so there's also, um, I think, a desire to um, interact uh, in an embodied way with those narratives, even when you aren't in the specific location. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, before we began recording, I said to you how uh, my aunt lived for decades across the Mississippi from Nauvoo, and so for a period of about forty years, I've seen Nauvoo change a lot. Um, is this part of the was this part of the sesquicentennial celebrations? This the growing of historical sites like at Independence and Nauvoo? Um, and has this become also part of a sort of a spiritual, um, I don't know what to call it, spiritual regimen for uh, believers? Um, I think the sesquic- sesquicentennial uh, drove the development of sites along the Mormon Trail, but it's not the only reason that um, these historic sites have been built up. Um, the prophet Gordon Hinckley was very interested in, um, tending to the church's historic sites and wanted the stories of the 19th century to continue to be, um, powerful and accessible stories to people in the 20th and 21st centuries. And so he played a big role in focusing on building up those sites. And is that is going to one of these sites now seen as, again, we might see as, they might not call it pilgrimage, but um, is that seen as part of one's spiritual development as a member of the LDS? It's, it's by no means a requirement, but mm-hmm. um, I think it's kind of this mixture as, as pilgrimage often is, it can be pilgrimage and tourism at the same time. And, um, it can be 
I think a lot of people see it as a faith promoting activity to go to these sites and kind of honor that history uh, and think about those theological ideas that were formulated in the 19th century. Just to conclude um, our conversation, unfortunately, uh, the LDS, uh, like other church bodies, is undergoing a great change, um, but its change is it's uh, gone into many more parts of the world than it was even, say, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's increasingly much, it was a very European and white church. It then became, it began to extend, it's become much more multi-ethnic um, in other parts of the, uh, bringing in people from other parts of the world into, the, into its community. Um, is this driving some of this change as well, this sort of sociological change within the LDS or... How do you think that will, I'm not asking you to prophesy, but how do you, how is this relation to place changing because of that? Well, I think, I think that is part of the reason that Gordon Hinckley was interested in these historic sites. The, the church is becoming increasingly global and there's this push to make, to continue to tell those um, central 19th century stories and to to make them meaningful to believers today. Um, but I I also talk in the book about how that pioneer narrative that has been such a powerful um, story for Latter Day Saint identity. The church has not um, addressed that. That's also a story about whiteness, and it's a story about empire. And so it's not necessarily a story that will be meaningful um, for people of color, um, for the international community. And so I think right now we're seeing um, the church attempt to stretch that story to include um, more people. And we're also seeing the limitations of the story. Well, my guest today has been Sarah Patterson. She's the author of Pioneers in the Attic, Place and Memory Along the Mormon Trail. Sarah, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. This was fun. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.